It's almost like Lego of how you can fit together all of your patents to create a portfolio that will be useful not only to when you're looking for investment, but one of the best things that I was told was think about how and who you want to exit to. Like if you plan on selling your company in the future, what IP might they be interested in purchasing that will increase the valuation of your company? Intellectual property allows founders to have a firm hold of their business ideas and trade secrets. You may not realize it, but these intellectual properties are asset to you. They help keep you competitive and innovative in an ever-changing market. That's why it's essential to protect this asset with an IP strategy. That's the reason why we curate this intellectual property podcast series. We want you as the founder to understand that your IP matters. So it's important to know what are your intellectual assets, how to protect them, and how can you leverage this asset for your business growth. Today's episode is the third episode of the Intellectual Property Podcast Series, and our guest is Susan Blanchett, co-founder and CEO of Origin Air, a health tech startup located in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Susan is a founder, just like many of you, and she is in the trenches in creating Origin Air's IP strategies. Susan shares, among others, the following insight a misconception she had 12 months ago and how it created challenges in moving her company forward. Why you as a founder should think differently about IP. Why it's important to involve your engineers and finance expert in this IP process. What are the key resources she used in getting her IP ready for grants and investors. How her exit strategy shapes the overall IP strategy. If you're listening to this episode and you're thinking, I'm not located in Canada, so why should I listen to this episode? If you are not located in Canada, don't jump to this conclusion that the episode is not relevant to you. Take the time to listen until the end because it will provide you tips where you can use it in your research within your own country of operation and for you to ask the right questions. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi, because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while and you are a regular listener, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business for good. If you have listened to the last two episodes in this podcast series, episode 128 and 129, there is one key point that every single guest made, including Susan in today's episode. It is about your exit strategy and how it impacts the overall IP strategy. This is when normally a founder realizes how important it is to have a forward-looking view. 
the same is true with financial results. As you are shifting from short term to long term, the value of historical information decreases. We cannot change the past. We can learn from the past, learn from what had happened and done, and use those pieces of information to build the futures. That's what financial forecasting is all about. If you are at a stage where you realize you need to build a more robust financial forecast but don't know where to start, we have a solution to your problem. Download the forecasting guide we have created for you and start creating a better and improved financial forecast. You can find the link to this guide in the show notes. And let's say after using the guide, you think, hmm, this guide helps. But I think it's better if I focus my time on doing what I really love, which is building and growing my business. I know business finance is important, but I don't love it. That's when we are here with you. We understand building a proper and robust financial forecast takes time, takes accountability, curiosity, and passion for your business. Connect with us at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat. Now, let's find out Susan's CEO journey. Susan Blanchett, welcome to her CEO journey. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about intellectual property and business finances. But before we dive into all that detail, let's start with your journey from a lawyer. And then now you are the co-founder and CEO of Origin Air. Yes, it's an interesting journey. I have a degree in environmental studies and psychology in addition to my law degree. And after 14 years with the province and getting an incredible education as a lawyer, I just wanted to do something that I was giving back. And I found I wasn't having the passion that I desired. And at that time, I met my co-founder who had a couple of businesses in Hawaii for 10 years. And then he had started a green living well company. When I met him, he had just realized that regular plants did not clean the air. And he had found genetically enhanced plants from the University of Washington, but he didn't know how to negotiate for the IP rights to these plants. And that's where I stepped in as a lawyer. That's how it began. So that's mean that From the very beginning, you already thought about this product will need an IP strategy. Yes, I knew that having an IP to ourselves would be the most important. At that time, universities only like to give out intellectual property to consortiums. So we actually shared the intellectual property with one other Canadian company for the first year And I realized very quickly how that weakened our positions. Investors like sure things and they want you to have full control. So realizing this early on and then you took the first step, what is the next step to really protect it? If you can share that with my audience, because majority of my audience may not know how they can apply or what they need to think about patents. As we moved along, I started getting a lot of denials from grants that I applied for, telling me that I needed in-house intellectual property that was made in Canada. And the more I started looking into it, it became clear that IP was more of an art than a science. 
And we finally, just this year, filed our first in-house patent in June. If you had asked me a year ago if I thought what we filed on was patentable, I would have said no, because it didn't seem like it fit the, the criteria of inventiveness and novelty and uniqueness that is required to, to get IP. There's many ways to file patents on something that is just a bit of a change or a new difference to the IP. And the way my patent agent explained it to me is, as long as you can show that you've made a change that is novel and different, it doesn't have to be like rocket science. The novelty, the utility, and the element of inventiveness is all you need. So our first in-house patent, just to show you how it isn't rocket science, is it's on a UV chamber. So it's UVC light. We use a unique baffle system that makes airflow change speed to slow down in front of the lights that actually can kill, or as my scientists would say, denature viruses such as coronavirus. And the novelty was using just a new form of light and the baffle system that changes the airflow. We don't need a super strong argument. You just need something that's different and unique and just a little bit different than what's been done before. To help others and the listeners, one of the big things is just trying to figure out how to search the registry. Like, looking it up online, taking a review of what is in there and seeing if your idea is novel or different and just taking a leap, hire a patent agent. So the first one, you say research. Second one, you said hire a patent agent. Is there any third step, fourth step? So I guess just to back up a bit, I should explain what our invention overall is. The genetically enhanced plants that we have the license to distribute globally, exclusive license. When we obtained those, we took them and put them into a refrigerator-sized commercial air purifier. So the air comes in through the plants. So we have a natural biofilter and that biofilter is aeroponically controlled and it's autonomous. So it's software controlled with all of the sensor technology that we've inputted into it, coming back to our cloud connected. We have an app. It tells people what the air is in the building, how the air is being cleaned as it comes in, as as it leaves. And once it goes through the biofilter and all these sensors, it goes through this chamber I was just talking about where any viruses, bacteria are denatured before the air is put back into a room. And the sensor technology tells our clients and us of exactly how the air is being cleaned. So at first, you you might think you can only patent the unit as a whole. But as we started to educate ourselves, we realized there's a, it's almost like Lego of how you can fit together all of your patents to create a portfolio that will be useful, not only to when you're looking for investment, But one of the best things that I was told was think about how and who you want to exit to. Like if you plan on selling your company in the future, what IP might they be interested in purchasing that will increase the valuation of your company? So for instance, in our area, we are developing the Sentinel, which is a freestanding commercial air purifier. But our big goal is to develop an HVAC integrated air purifier that will connect 
to the AHU and circulate all of the air in a building. So for, for our exit, we would be looking to HVAC, large HVAC companies. What type of IP would they want? Because a large HVAC company is not going to purchase or, or acquire a company unless it's doing 50 million in sales. For us to jump to 50 million in sales is going to take a long time. But with the correct IP that they want to acquire, they might acquire our company when it's at 10 million in sales if it has IP that it can add to its portfolio. So for instance, with our sensor technology and how it connects with the building management system, that's a piece of IP we want to think about. So back to the list of of what I would do, the steps I would take is, is maybe before hiring a patent agent, talk to your industry technical advisor, try to speak to an IP focused advisor, And then one other step, like our company is still pre-commercial. We're just starting sales at this point and we've only raised a pre-seed round. We've opened a seed round now. So before you have 75,000 in sales, you can also apply for Canada Export. So Export Canada will fund patents overseas. So if you're planning on going global or even to the United States, this is a very important step. Because patents are very expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is what I'm going to ask you. How did you finance this? <laughs> Our first patent we, we applied for in June was covered by a grant from the Innovation Asset Collective. We've applied for and not received yet, but are hopeful with the Export Canada for funding to cover some of our overseas grants. There is the PCT. It's a patent agreement across... 200 nations under the PCT, you have 30 months to decide where you want to register. It's kind of a placeholder. So then if someone else has developed the same thing, as long as you register before them, yours is held. And then you have 30 months to decide, am I going to register in the United States, in Canada, overseas? So we are at a point right now where we've been having to make the decision of where we're going to register this this IP. Canada and U.S. is an easy decision, but as an early stage company, we're probably still 12 to 18 months before we are globally selling product in Southeast Asia, which is our target market. So we're having to pick and choose which countries we want to register in. And each country is about $10,000. You have to pay for translation fees. You have to pay for the registrations of the IP and each country is different. Like for instance, several of them are under the PCT. Taiwan is not. It's too much for a CEO to figure out on their own. So that's why the patent agent is key. You need a patent agent that has gone to school for 10 years to figure this out. So is a patent agent also a lawyer? No, they aren't. A patent agent is not a lawyer. Oftentimes, a patent agent is also trained as an engineer, or you want to find a patent agent that is trained in the area that you want to register IP in. So, for instance, we are registering IP more in mechanical and linked also with our next IP being our biofilter. We want someone with some expertise with plants or agricultural. So it's very key to find out 
if your patent agent has the background that you require, because they need to know the subject matter that they're going to be filing the uh, intellectual property in. So it's a lot of writing. Our patent application, it's, it's like a scientific report. It has to be somebody with a background in the area you're filing. The role of a patent agent, if you can explain it a little bit more, basically they do the research for you? Yes. So our patent agent on our first patent came in, met us in our office, sat down with our engineers. Because at the time, I have a young engineering team as a startup. And at the time, when I told them I was wanting us to develop our IP strategy, they kind of looked at me like, I, like how are we going to get IP? This is normal. Because engineers' brains think novel things are just normal, right? They don't really understand that they are creating something unique and inventive. And this comes back to at the beginning of our conversation when I said it's more like an art, even though it involves so much science. There's the intricacy of how there can be a novel difference comes down to the details. So he would explain the details of what they needed to show him to be able to be successful when he was defending defending the patent. Once the investigator started to ask questions. So for instance, using our filed IP as an example, if they had just said, oh, air comes in, flies around, goes out, we never would be successful. But he explained the nuances of how important it was that the baffle system would speed up and slow down air at certain points that were close to the LEDs, allowing it to more quickly denature the the bacteria or the viruses. It comes around again to the importance of engineers to have the patent education. I think the patent agent is, that is the role. They the one that need to tell you how much is enough, right? They did the research, figure out like out of this big system, which pieces can be patent worthy. After that, they submit the application and then they basically sit down with the inspector and argue why it's patent worthy. Is there anything else that I'm missing here? It kind of translates the engineering technical language into still technical, but something that's very able to follow and something that follows the rules that are required by the registry, the patent registry. There's also one more piece. Like my patent agent is very good at individual pieces But there's also a strategy piece, and that's where the Innovation Asset Collective comes in, and they've got strategists who will really sit with you and help you to think about what pieces you need instead of just figuring out how to file specific pieces. So it's really sitting down with a strategist and a patent agent and trying to figure out your whole strategy of what pieces you want at what time. And patents are only one piece of it. And there's other things like trade secrets when you wouldn't want someone to know the intricacies of of what you're doing. Whereas a patent, people can read it and see exactly what we've developed, which makes it very able for them to copy it. So like at first I got quite nervous because I hadn't filed the patents on any parts of our, um, of the Sentinel air purifier, but we had done one article in in a magazine. And I had someone say, oh, as soon as you publish it, you can't file a patent on it. 
but it's not that cut and dry. You shouldn't just for the, the new startup entrepreneurs here, you shouldn't be publishing anything that you might put a patent on just to be extra safe. But with ours, because it was just kind of a rendering drawing of the Sentinel and it wasn't a picture of the inside working parts of the UVC chamber, we could still file. But there is legalities around that. And to be safe, before you publish anything on something you want to file a patent on, talk to a a patent agent or or an IP lawyer. I feel just like listening to you talking about this, there has got to be like one exclusive department within your company just dealing with IP. <laughs> yes, I, I completely agree with you. And and I think we've talked about it with the IAC Collective, like quite surprising that there isn't more IP courses for engineers because people think of IP as a as a legal area. I think of it it's as much engineering as legal. It should be a joint course between the two that is ongoing. And I, I don't know the percentage, but I would guess that a large percentage of patent agents are engineers. I agree with you. I think there's got to be a collaboration be- between engineers and the legal team for IP. It would be interesting. <laughs> Even for myself, for myself as a finance person, I would be interested to know, right? Because At the end of the day, the way I view it, any business decision, there's going to be financial implication. And if the finance person understand how it works and then what is going on in this intellectual property journey, then the finance person can also be strategic in advising the type of decision to be made by the company. Yes. And it also falls into the budgeting, right? So our our finance manager she's very involved in our budgeting decisions. And definitely, I want her to understand the IP. A lot of businesses or female founders or other founders think that finance in a silo. And then the truth is, if at the end of the day, what you're going to show to investors or you yourself as the founder, you look at the financial statements and then it's kind of like a bucket of information uh, from all the decision making within the company, then for sure, the finance person needs to know what is going on in the IP. Maybe not to the detail of the engineer, but at least at a very high level. And then what is the impact and then how that finance person can help and making the best decision for the company. I completely agree with you. And I think it has to be, like you say, more than just a surface level. They need to know at least the strategy that we are have in place and how we're going to go forward. Like for instance, we are applying for another piece of IP this quarter. And then we're also registering our first IP, the plants, all over the world and trying to decide where we're going to do that. And then my finance manager is tied in because that's going to cost $50,000 to do five countries. Very quickly, you realize you can't go to everywhere you want to go. Like if I'm focusing on Indonesia and Singapore, but I also want to go to China and Philippines and India, how do I choose? Like I can't do and I have to do Canada in the US, that's 70 to 80,000 for a startup. I can't do that. And I have to register those before the time limit or else I I lose my chance. So you have to choose. 
And some of those choices might be wrong, but you go, you have to weigh all of the different potential yeses and nos. So far, if you can summarize, what are the benefits that you have seen about having an IP strategy in place? Yes, several benefits. So it's important for raising and it's important for receiving grants. I kept getting denied for grants in Canada because it was a U.S. patent. And this is important because there was a couple of other grants we'd applied for that had asked about IP and large government of Canada grants. You know, that's one of the main questions. And a couple of them specifically asked for Canadian IP because I know one of the mandates for the IP collective, which is what funds IAC, is to increase Canadian IP. So I highly recommend Canadian founders to think about a Canadian IP strategy. The other beauty of the IAC is it's a collective. So they purchase outside IP that you can, as part of the collective, use in your company. So if you can find like-minded founders that have similar interests to your company, you can actually have use of IP without having to pay to get it, which is another incredible piece. So that was one big wake-up call. It was last December, we got turned down for the STTC seed fund. And I had everything else in place that they they needed you to raise, you know, a minimum. I, I had raised over $200,000, $250,000 from, from seed fund investors or pre-seed. And everything else, like I thought we were a shoo-in. And then in our interview afterwards, when we were denied the, the seed fund, they said two things you're missing. One, in-house IP come back to us next year with IP. And two, they wanted to have a known investor. Every pitch I've done, they ask about IP. They may not necessarily look into it at the pitch, but during due diligence, they're going to want to see the contracts you have surrounding your intellectual property. If you can say the lesson that you learn in your financing journey, what can you share with my audience? Well, I would say speaking as a female founder, The first pre-seed, pre-commercial round is extremely difficult. We came very close to the wire and sticking to your gun, sticking to your gut, I completely can't emphasize enough how much you need someone who is either a CPA or formally trained with financials, statements, and performance to be there holding your hand and helping you through. So you need someone who knows how to raise a round. And I would just call and discuss what was going on with this person. It was more just having the backup of like, yeah, no, your gut is right. You do not want to go ahead with this. I, even though it's really hard sometimes when you're getting close to the edge, which all startups do, and you're worried that you're not going to you know, make hit your payroll in a few months, having someone that you can talk to about whether or not it's a good idea. And also you have to be able to hit the hard questions quickly. It was just a very simple, I call them like gatekeeper questions. 
Like ask those gatekeeper questions first. Tell them what your valuation is. Tell them how much you're raising and what percentage of the company that that would be if it's an equity round or if you're raising on a convertible note or a safe. Tell them what the discount is. And if they're not interested, get rid of them fast. There's no point stringing along someone that you're never going to have a deal with and wasting your time. Susan, this has been a pleasure and I would love for you to tell your my audience, where can people find you? Come check us out at originair.com. That's O-R-I-G-E-N-A-I-R.com. We are a startup of about 18 employees now located in Victoria, British Columbia, and soon coming to places near you. Our focus is commercial buildings, And hopefully you will see our beautiful Sentinel cleaning the air around you soon. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Christina. And that's bring us to the end of another show. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. If you want to create a proactive financial plan and process for your business, so you are ready to weather the financial storm over the next few months. Let's chat and see what's possible for you. Book in a time to speak with me at christinashahli.com forward slash let's chat.